We're going to start in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There is also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed, we justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. When the, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the, woman, and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Let's pray. Lord, we're gathered here to celebrate the resurrection of your son Jesus. That you are gracious and powerful and mighty to save us through his death. We thank you, Lord, that the tomb today is empty. That it is because of that that we know that Jesus has all power over death. It does not rule over him, he rules over it. And because of that, Lord, death does not rule over your children. And we thank you for that, God. We thank you, not just for a small glimmer of hope, but for a bright, shining beacon of hope in this dark world. So now, God, illuminate our hearts and our minds today to your word. We celebrate, we remember, we commemorate what you did thousands of years ago. And we say hallelujah. You truly are great. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Thank you for having life over death. 
for raising from the dead, for claiming us as your own. For it is in you that we have life, and only in you. Amen. Well, think back to a year ago. If you were a year ago right here in this place on Easter, it'd actually be empty, if you remember. Uh, we were right in the middle of the, of the beginning of all the shutdowns, and so we had already gone online and had started doing pre-recorded services. We pre-recorded the worship, pre-recorded the sermon. We kind of spliced everything together, um, and that's where we were. And many of us um, celebrated Easter probably with just our immediate family uh, because of all the shutdowns and the concerns about the spread of the COVID virus. Well, a lot has happened this past year. A lot hasn't happened this past year. But I am glad and blessed that the saints of God um, in this church get to gather today in person. Amen? So it's good to be with you all. It's been two years since we've been together for Easter. Uh, what's happened in this past year? Well, one, uh, the kingdom of God has not been shaken. True? Um, last time I checked, God was still on his throne. Amen? Last time I checked, Jesus was still at his right hand. Amen? So today I want to look uh, briefly at a couple things that we see in this passage. I want to actually focus on um, the, the thieves on the cross, one on Jesus' right, one on his left. But I actually want to make a few preliminary statements about uh, who Jesus is as we look at this text and some other texts. Uh, one, and, and these are all like theological statements. One, Jesus is our friend. And we have to have a theology where we can make a statement like that and not have to qualify it. Because a lot of times, uh, us, and myself included, with what we want to make sure is a robust, solid, foundational theology, can sometimes get nervous when we hear a statement like that, that Jesus is our friend. Uh, friends, that's the very message that I needed to hear, along with many other things that brought me to salvation. And the scripture is actually pretty clear on this idea of Jesus, the God-man, God himself, being our friend. Let's look at just a couple passages. Look at James chapter 2. We're going to come back to Luke so you can uh, keep your finger in that passage. But look at James chapter 2. This is in the section in James 2 talking about faith without works is dead. Let's pick it up. Oh, where should we pick it up? Let's pick it up in verse 19. It says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Now, it's important here because it goes on. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and set them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Some people try to say that 
uh, Paul and Romans and, and James here in, in contradiction. It's important to understand definitions when we talk about justification. And the key to this entire passage is in the actual one that I wanted to reference where it says Abraham believed God, verse 23, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, if you look at that passage in Genesis, we don't have time right now. What had Abraham done at that point? Had he actually offered up his son on the altar at that point? No. So Abraham believed God, period. He believed God. You can look it back up in Genesis, starting in 15. You can reference it and look at it. He believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. What was? His faith. His faith. But I want you to notice here, for our purposes, and he was called a friend of God. Now there's two aspects to that. The one aspect is that he was a friend and not an enemy. So scripture will talk about us by nature, being children of wrath. By us, we were enemies of God. It doesn't matter if you, if you want to think of yourself as an enemy of God, but as an unbeliever, you were an enemy of God. Why? Because you were going against His very nature, His will. Everything you did was against His purposes. Everything you did had nothing to do with glorifying Him, pleasing Him. Everything you did, love was completely out of that concept in terms of your relationship with God. It was loveless. It was fruitless. You were an enemy of God. What happens to Abraham here? He believes God. God justifies him. He counts it as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Jesus uses this term with his own disciples. Do you all think you're a disciple? I hope so, right? Look what he says in John 15. Starting in verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So here Jesus himself calls his disciples. He's, you're, not just, you're not just servants. You're friends. Let's not lose this important fact. Like he walked with them, he talked with them. These were his disciples. He chose them for three years. He laughed with them, he cried with them, he was angry at them, and he loved them deeply. They truly were his friends. And we are truly his friend. We can walk with him. We have a relationship with him. Not from a distance, but very near. It is very imminent, the relationship we have with Jesus. We need to make sure we remind ourselves of that. Yes, we'll get to some other points that are also important to emphasize regarding Jesus and our relationship with him. But friends, this is kind of what helped piece things together for me. Growing up in the church, this was one of the keys that I needed to hear, that Jesus wanted to know me. Of course, he already knew me, but he wanted me to know him. He wanted to have relationship with him. So let's enjoy our friendship with Jesus. Let's nurture that relationship. Let's tend to it. Sometimes we can get caught up so much in studying the Word, which is a good thing, 
and we can get caught up in different Bible studies. Those are good things, but sometimes we, we can use those in things uh, as ends in themselves. And ultimately, we're trying to grow in sanctification, and then we're trying to grow in our relationship with the Lord. That is the purpose, sanctification and growth. And if this is just an end in and of itself, we just study it to get more head knowledge, then, then we lose the very purpose that it's intended to do. And some of us have lost our enjoyment of our friendship with Jesus. You need to rekindle that. Second, Jesus is our Savior. Think about it for a moment, friends. Jesus went through great pain and suffering for us. Look back in Luke, just a couple chapters before the one we just read, actually just one, back in Luke 22. Verse 44, it says, And being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Friends, Jesus suffered great mental and emotional anguish. He also suffered physically, as we read. And listen, let me just pause for a moment. For those of you with various health issues, whether they're emotional or mental or, or physical, like Jesus knows what it's like for the body to be in pain, not just like uh, from a distance, but very real. I mean, Jesus had a body. He was fully man. And he knows what it's like to have great mental and emotional agony. You can see it right here. There's a, a medical term for what he experienced, the sweat becoming like great drops of blood falling to the ground. That's great mental and emotional agony. And we get this verse in Hebrews that I want you to see. Look at Hebrews 4 that helps put this in context for us. Verse 15, Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And some of you might need to underline that. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. What is he talking about? Well, I think he's talking about our physical weaknesses, but he's also talking about our emotional and mental weaknesses. He's able to sympathize. One who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he knows your pain, not from afar, but very real and near. He's been there. He's literally been there and experienced it firsthand. He also knows your suffering, not from afar, but very real and near. I mean, he was nailed to a cross. He suffered for hours. His best friends denied him. They abandoned him. They left him at his most crucial hour. He knows your suffering. He was indeed fully man, and he fully experienced in painful ways what it was to be human. My third preliminary point is Jesus is our Lord. Look back in Luke, because I want you to see this word used in 23. In verse 43, he says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now much has been made about what is paradise and different things. 
it originally just referred to a garden or like a pleasure park. In fact, what, isn't that one of the great wonders of the world is like the hanging gardens in Babylon or something? Um, but th- these gardens, just like those in Babylon, uh, would be such as a king would possess. But this idea of paradise, if you think about it, what, what really should that hearken your mind back to if you, if you know your biblical theology and your Bible well? Back to the garden, right? Back to the garden. Back to the original paradise. This paradise refers to God's garden. It's like an, an eschatological image, an end-time image of a new creation. So the paradise restored. Paradise lost in the garden. Paradise restored. When? Ultimately, when Christ comes a second time. But here's the thing about these gardens that was interesting. It, they weren't just like, it wasn't like the botanical gardens where, you know, even today they might even be open. You know, you can go down there and see all these amazing things, right? Uh, you had to be invited by the king to these gardens. Only he could issue the invitation to you. And here Jesus is saying, you'll be in that garden with me. You'll be in the paradise. Notice also this emphasis on the word today. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's put to rest much bad uh, theology on a number of different fronts, including baptism and a whole host of other things. But notice just that actual word today. It assures the criminal here, the thief. And it actually assures Luke's readers those back then and and us today, that the promise of salvation is not merely a future possibility. It's not just a mere future possibility, but an assured and present reality in Jesus. Today. Not, oh, soon, or uh, someday, or in the near future. No, today. That's pretty concrete. That's pretty real. He's not just trying to be nice to the criminal. Jesus doesn't lie. He's not just... Uh, using some metaphor here. No, today means today means today. That thief died and was with Jesus that day in paradise. That's the plain reading, the clear reading, and in my opinion, the only reading of the text. But notice the approach of these two thieves. Let's look at the first thief. He makes a few mistakes here. One, he doesn't fear God. Instead of fearing God, what does he do? He maligns God's Son, the very instrument of salvation. Look what it says. Verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged, my version says railed, I know some says hurled abuse. They, he railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself in us. I mean, he's, he's mocking Jesus. He's not like, hey, if you're the Christ, could you, like, save us? No, he, it, it says he's railing at him, he's hurling abuse at him, and he's mocking him. He doesn't fear God. He actually is, is mocking the very one that was sent to die for him. Two, he assumes that Jesus is guilty when, in fact, he's innocent. You're up here just like me and the other thief. This is where you belong. 
You belong with us. More mocking. Three, in his sarcasm, he fails to recognize that this suffering righteous one will be delivered not from death, but through death. And that he will continue to exercise his role as Savior. See, that, that first thief was mistaken. He thought that the, the death was the end. We know it's the beginning. So G- Jesus was delivered through death, not from death. And thus we are delivered through death, not from death. Jesus actually died. He died. He didn't faint or swoon or collapse or anything. He died. Think about that for a moment, what that thief said. Save yourself and us. And in his mocking, ironically, he was acknowledging the very thing Jesus was doing right then. Saving others from their sins. The thief was blinded to it. He was caught up in his own anger, malice, disbelief. And notice just if you kind of try to capture his attitude, think of that attitude as demanding. Like save yourself and us. Making demands of Jesus. Making requirements. I demand you to do it. Friends, let me just tell you, there's two attitudes we're going to look at here. There's two approaches to God here. We're looking at the first one. And if you take this first approach where you think you can appear before God someday and demand to get into heaven, you'll be very disappointed. You'll be very disappointed. And sometimes you talk to different people and they'll share with you and, oh, God will let me in. Oh, I've done these things for God. Now, God doesn't really owe you anything. And he doesn't have to do whatever you ask him to do. He really doesn't. You can make all the demands you want. Um, God has demands on you. And when you flip that around and make demands of God, you're putting yourself in the position of God. You've got it, you got it inverted. So you've got to get it right. So we don't demand things of God. We don't require things of him. We definitely don't mock him. We don't, we don't speak in sarcasm towards him. But we, we need to make sure that if we're coming to God, we are not coming like this, this thief did. If this is your attitude, um, it is an attitude that has to change immediately. This first thief is not in heaven. Let's look at the th- second thief. Look at his response in verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. So what's he saying? Uh, We deserve our fate. You know, you thief over there and me, we're both guilty. We've, We've done criminal things. We deserve to be hanging on this cross, but not Jesus. So in verse 41, what does he do? He acknowledges Jesus' innocence. We are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus does not deserve to be hanging on that cross. That's some pretty good theology. He did not do anything to earn a a spot on that cross. He lived the perfect life. He broke no Roman law. He broke no Jewish law. He walked in perfection for his years on the earth. 
And in, in a very true and real sense, where was his rightful place? was on Caesar's throne. But his kingdom had not yet come. And that's not what he was sent for. Also look at verse 42. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He trusts in Jesus' power to save him. I mean, think about that. This, this man exhibits a pretty great faith. Jesus has been crucified on a cross, is hours away from death, and the thief is like, hey, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. That's some pretty solid theology right there. He knew that there was a life to come, that Jesus had the power over that life to come, and he's asking for Jesus to include him in that life to come. It's interesting when he says in verse 42, remember me, that in the Old Testament, that exact form of the petition always occurs with reference to God. Remember me. It's a, it's a, it's a sign of, 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 of Jesus' divinity. It's a hint that, that this thief knew that Yes, if, if this Jesus who's about to die is going to live again, he, he's got to be more than just man. He's got to be God. So this criminal trusted in Jesus. Think about that for a moment. I mean, he didn't know too much about Jesus. But he knew enough. He knew enough. And notice this. This criminal is the first to recognize that Jesus' death is not a contradiction of his Messiahship. Right? I mean, the disciples thought it was over. They're all scared and running. They thought this was the end. This wasn't what they had envisioned. He's also the first to recognize that Jesus' crucifixion is a precursor to his enthronement. He anticipates Jesus' kingly rule. The disciples didn't see that. And this hardened criminal who acknowledges he belongs on the cross, he acknowledges his sin, which is what we need to do if we want to come before God. He acknowledges he belongs on the cross. He's the first person to truly have his eyes opened. He once was lost, but now is found. Well, what about us, friends? What about us? I mean, that, that, that's good and great for that second thief, right? He's with Jesus right now. But what about us? Because here's the thing, like, the church is at a crossroads, and it's been for a while. The, tra the trajectory of the church is trending downwards. Um, it's not a good place for it to be right now. And the church has been uh, just kind of sticking its finger to the cultural winds, seeing which way they blow, and then adjusting the sails accordingly. We've seen this with views on sex, views on marriage, now views on gender. Um, that just covers dealing with people. 
that doesn't even mention the views of the Bible or of God himself. And it's really sad to see this occur even amongst so-called conservative believers. In February, a prominent Christian author, well-known, sold millions of books. I'm sure some of you have read his books. I'm sure more than some of you. He walked back a sermon that he gave over 15 years ago on the topic of homosexuality. And he apologized for it. And he basically said the issue of homosexuality is not worth dividing over. And he apologized to the LGBT community for his sermon. Friends, on bi- biblical issues of morality, when we, when we study the Bible, when we're looking for what it says, um, you know, I, there can be a position A and a position B. Um, one can be wrong and one can be right, but they, they both can't be right. Now, both, you could admit both could be wrong, potentially, depending on how many possible views there are, but they both can't be right. And when it comes for us regarding biblical faithfulness, we have to make sure that we don't capitulate and that we don't surrender. And when it comes to the Word, we have to believe and we have to stand on it and we have to stand for it. There's a Christianity Today article written this week talking about uh, the death of Jesus. And here, here's the last sentence of the article, written just this past week. He became, talking about Jesus, he became one of us. Let me just preface it. I don't believe this, okay? I know we got a lot of guests here today, so I, just, I want to preface it. I don't, we don't believe this. I don't believe this. The Bible doesn't teach this. He became one of us, not to shame us for our doubts, but to teach us how to doubt well to doubt faithfully. And so we are somehow saved, too, by his doubts. That's how it wraps up this article on Jesus and the resurrection. Like, what kind of drivel is this? Saved by, by his doubts? That that's, doesn't even make sense. There's no theological grounding for that whatsoever. We have to remember, a little leaven does what? Leavens the whole lump. I mean, that's why being plugged into a biblical church, it, it actually matters pretty immensely. You need to be fed a, a steady diet of biblical truth. This is why membership in a church matters. It's why requirements for membership matter. And, and it's very concerning that there's churches that, that say they believe the Bible, that it's inerrant, but they're not willing to stand up, count the costs, and stand firm. Friends, judge a church uh, by what comes out of the pulpit but also judge a church by what doesn't come out of the pulpit. Because you can speak a lot of truth and, and dance around uncomfortable issues, unpopular issues, and still speak truth, just not what? The whole truth. The whole counsel of God. So what, what a church speaks says volumes, and what a, church speak, what a church doesn't speak also sees volumes. I was mentioning it at our life group, uh, on Friday about a, a Christian uh, professor at a college. And one of the first things that he has to do, he teaches a history class, one of the first things he has to do uh, when students come into his classes, he has to teach them the, the difference between Martin Luther and Martin Luther King Jr. This is a Lutheran college. <clears throat> um, it's unfortunate. We don't, we don't know truth because we aren't educated 
and we expect the church to do it, we expect the school to, to do it, and sometimes we simply don't care. We just need to make sure that, that, that we know truth, that we know the word, and that, that we're educated. And here's the thing. <clears throat> the church paves the way on these things. The church makes a way, the church shows the way, and the church fights the whole way. Friends, Jesus didn't promise us uh, lollipops and cupcakes. Um, he promised us heartache and hardship. And we're starting to see in America more and more of it. Um, our brothers and sisters in other countries, they're kind of like, welcome to the party. <clears throat> Where you been? Look at John 16. The very last verse, John 16. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So we are going to have tribulation. That's that word that we looked at last week. Plipsis in the Greek. We will have the tribulation. We will face it. Not the great one necessarily, but we will have tribulations. We will have afflictions. We will have sufferings. Those are guaranteed. But friends, then you can't leave out the second part of the verse. Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. So as you're dealing with those afflictions and sufferings, you've got to remember the second part. Jesus has overcome the world. That is our hope. That's what he tells us to do. Take heart. Continue to believe. Continue to press on. Have faith in me. I mean, think about that for a moment. Friends, like Jesus rose from the dead. And we need to let that sink in for a moment. And just kind of ruminate on it. He rose from the dead. And he makes some powerful statements. Statements that we gloss over or forget. Look uh, a couple chapters earlier in John. John chapter 10. You've probably read this before, but it needs to really stick out to you, especially on today, Easter. <clears throat> Verse 17 of John 10. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. Who's taking up his life again? Jesus. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. So Jesus willingly went to the cross. He was not forced on there. God used the Romans. God used the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But Jesus says, no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own. And didn't, didn't he say like, hey, right now, if I wanted to, I could call down like legions of angels, right? They could rescue me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And then check this out. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. And that, that's the God-man. He can lay down his life and literally has the power to raise himself from the dead. Think about that. And Jesus died that death on the cross for you. Do you realize what when we talk about uh, Jesus dying on the cross for your sins, what that means? It means that you deserved a punishment. You literally deserved the wrath of God. 
You deserve the wrath of God. That's actually one of his attributes. You don't really hear about it talk too often. Love, mercy, kindness, omnipotence, omniscience, goodness, but wrath. That's one of his attributes. He's wrathful. We don't like to talk about that. That doesn't sell well in books. doesn't sell well in trying to get people to uh, come visit your church. But friends, that's what we're saved from. We are saved from the wrath of God. That's what we're saved from. So Jesus comes, and guess what? When, it says, when we say Jesus died for your sins, we're saying that you deserve the wrath of God, and Jesus took the wrath of God. So when he's, when he's on that cross, I mean, there is actually a physical pain, duh, having nails driven through your wrists and, and through your legs. That's not going to feel great. We all get that. That's horrible. It's an excruciating way to die as your lungs slowly fill up with water. You have to lift yourself up on the legs with the, the, the nails driven through so you can take a, a breath. That's horrible. But you want to know what's worse than that? Receiving God's wrath. That's way worse than that. That's why earlier he was sweating drops of blood. Why? Because he knew he was about to receive the wrath of God. Way worse than any physical punishment. That's why he, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father had to turn away from the Son as he poured out his wrath on his very own beloved Son. Why? To redeem us. To redeem us. So God poured out his wrath on his Son, but it was really supposed to be poured out on you. You deserved it. You earned it. And friends, guess what? Every day we live, we earn that wrath more and more. And yet Jesus comes and dies a death that he really didn't deserve to die. And he has your sins and my sins placed on him. And he receives the full wrath of God that he could pay, as First John says, for the sins of the world. Your sins and my sins. Friends, here's the thing. It's just not like a blanket thing that just everyone is automatically saved. No, it has to be, the fancy word might be appropriated to you. It has to be given to you. Salvation has to come. What is the instrument by which God saves you? It's through faith. Okay? He wants to give you his grace. He, he wants you to be a friend of his, just like Abraham was. He wants you to be his friend. But guess what? That only happens by him pouring out his grace through the faith that you have in him, through you trusting in him for the finished work of Jesus. When Jesus says, it's finished, the question is, was it finished? And yes, it was. It was finished. And you can trust. That's why we talk about the finished work of Jesus. Why? Everything that the Father wanted him to do, everything that he came to do, he finished it. He completed it to tell us that it is done. It is completed. It is finished. And because of that, you can have life. Because of that, you don't have to hang on your own cross someday before God. You don't have to have wrath poured out upon you. You can have the wrath abated. Not because you're good. Not because you're amazing or awesome. Not because you help little old ladies cross the road. Not because you read your Bible. Not because you pray. Not because you give money to charity. None of those things mean anything in terms of getting you to heaven. They don't get you any closer whatsoever. 
If they did, guess what? It wouldn't be about God's grace. Grace is something that is not earned. By definition, grace has to be unearned, unmerited favor. God sees you, and He sees you fallen, and He sees you messed up, and He sees you sinful, and He sees you walking towards death. He sees you dangling over the pit of hell. And He swoops in to save you. Trust in this God who sacrificed His own Son for you. Put your faith in Him. Believe in Him who loved you so much for God so loved the world that He sent His only Son that whosoever might believe in Him might not perish, but have eternal life. God doesn't want you to perish. But some people will perish apart from Jesus. But He doesn't want that for anyone. Friend, today, make today, that today that that we just read in Luke, make today be your day of salvation. Make today be the day that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. I urge you and encourage you to trust in Jesus. He is alive. Amen? That's why I love, look back in Luke. We'll start at the end of Luke 24, uh, 23, 56, uh, 55, excuse me. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Isn't that, that has to be like one of the best questions in the entire Bible. I, I mean, I just love that. I just God chose like, Obviously, but he chose like the perfect phrasing right there. Why do you seek the living among the dead? I mean, they could have just made a statement. You just could have just told them, but no, like a question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be delivered and on the third day rise. And, and Jesus does indeed do that. Look at Luke 18 real quick, because I want you to see that. He does it a, a number of times. We'll just look at one instance. Luke 18:31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. Jesus dying on the cross did not catch Jesus off guard. He knew that was the mission from the beginning. That was the mission. Die 
for God's chosen. Die for the sins of the world. And he was confident of the end result, right? On the third day, he will rise. Jesus knew it. Friends, you too can be confident of the end result in your relationship with Jesus and where your future dwelling is. Because here's the thing. We got one or two ways where we can approach God. We can be like that first thief, demanding, requiring, mocking, telling God how it's going to be. Think about that for a moment. Or we can be like the second thief. I mean, he, he realized how sinful he was. He acknowledged he deserved the death he was receiving. He confessed that. He basically confessed that he was a sinner. And then he trusted in Christ. You know, some saw Jesus raise the dead, right? I mean, they were there when Lazarus came out. They were there at the widow of of, uh, Nain. They saw that. And they did not believe. And here, this robber sees Jesus being put to death. And yet, the robber believes. I mean, isn't that interesting? You see Jesus do all these miracles, including raising someone from the dead, and people still didn't believe. They, I mean, they, 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 they saw it with their eyes. And here this, this, this criminal, this thief, this, this robber, sees Jesus dying, and he trusts in him. And think about that. What does the unrepentant criminal want? He wants Jesus to come down from the cross. You know, you know, come down from the cross. Save us. Save yourself. But think about this. For the repentant criminal, Jesus must remain on the cross and fulfill his divine duty to save. I encourage you today to be like that second criminal. Come before the Lord humbly, seeking him, Acknowledging the full extent of your sins. Humbling yourself in His presence and asking Him to truly save you. Trusting that what Jesus did was enough and was for you. That's where salvation lies. One last verse, 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Friends, some of you here, you you know some new creations, but maybe you know you're not a new creation. But you can be a new creation. You can have the old pass away. You can have the new come. And look what it says in verse 18. All this is from God. It's not from us. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Notice in verse 19, he's not counting their trespasses. Who's the them? 
I mean, it's us, right? Right? Not counting their trespasses against him. Why? Who is he counting it against? He's counting it against Jesus. That's who he's counting it against. That's why it's not just, it wouldn't be proper to say not counting their trespasses, period. No, he's counting their trespasses. He's counting our trespasses. But he's not counting it against us. Why? Because we are in Christ. We're the new creation. Why? Because he already counted it against Christ. He already paid the price Jesus did. He already suffered the wrath of God. It's been counted against him so that it didn't have to be counted against us. Not counting their trespasses against them. If you've trusted in Christ, he doesn't count your trespasses against you. Past sins, present sins, future sins, he's already counted it against Christ. And Christ has already paid past sins, present sins, future sins. He's paid once for all. Once for all. The sacrifice. So friends, I encourage you, I don't know where all of you are at with Jesus, but, but make today the day of salvation that you truly trust in Him. Trust in Him for what He has done for you. Let's pray. Lord, I, I do pray right now You'd send Your Spirit to do His work in the hearts and minds of people. And I pray, Father, today, here, now, people would trust in you truly for the first time. That you'd regenerate their souls. That you'd give them a saving faith to trust in you. That you'd cleanse them, you'd justify them. You'd take them from the kingdom of darkness and into your amazing kingdom that you'd adopt them into your family. Only you can do this, Father. So we ask that you would. And I pray for those that already know you. Lord, do help us to remember that Jesus is our friend. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. Let us take that hope with us. Let us enjoy our relationship with you and with Jesus. And we thank you, God, that you are victorious in all things, that you do have victory over the grave. Continue to strengthen us to stand firm for your truth, that we might glorify your name in all things.